One day Elijah went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put, it, put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay when, there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elijah came, he went up to this room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elijah said to him, tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elijah asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elijah said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elijah said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant. And next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, she's, she said to his father. He said to his father, his father told his servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, I didn't. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound of response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elijah and told him the boy is not awakened. When Elijah reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door, and the two of them prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed, lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and he stretched himself out upon him. The boy's body grew warm. Sometimes man cannot define miracles, only God can. Elijah turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him one more time. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. What do you say when somebody sneezes? God bless you. 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 Elijah summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did when she came and he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. 
Unlike the poor widow who appears earlier in this chapter, this woman, the Bible says, is well-to-do. She is well-to-do. She is not a widow. She has a husband. The message calls her the leading lady of the town. How would you like to be called that, ladies? How would you like to be called that? How would you like to be well-to-do? Raise your hands, ladies. You want to be well-to-do? How many of you ladies would like to be the leading woman of the town? The English Standard Version in NLT describes her as wealthy. How many of you ladies like to be wealthy? Raise your hands up. Oh, you're too modest. You are too spiritual. The NAS refers to as prominent. Can I get a prominent out there? And how about this one? The King James Version refers to here this way as a great woman. Husbands, lift up your hands if you want your wife to be a great woman. (laughs) Praise God. Praise the Lord. Why is she called a great woman? Is she called a great woman because she does great things? I don't believe that at all. I believe she's called a great woman because she does things great. And even with this up and down emotional five-year odyssey, about four to five years, still she continues to do things great for God which eventually moves the hand and heart of God to do great things for her. Because she is a great woman, one phase of her greatness comes out this way. Point number one, and there's six of them, point number one is in her hospitality toward God's servant. It's her hospitality. It says in the Bible there, whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. Ancient times, no holiday inns, no Hyatt Regencies, no Comfort Inns, no Hampton Inns, none of that. Ancient travelers were absolutely dependent on the friendliness, kindness, and the hospitality of people to take them in, for them to rest and be refreshed, prophets especially. This woman takes it up a notch, says to her husband, I know that this is a man of God. Let's add on a room. Let's make a room for this man of God, which they do. Hospitality is defined this way as the practice of entertaining strangers gratuitously and with kindness. The original word from hospitality comes from the word hospe, from which we get the word hospice, which means a home providing care for the sick or terminally ill. Elijah does not appear to be sick or terminally ill, but this room is provided for him to rush to rest and refresh himself from his travels. I love Hebrews 13, too. It says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Imagine entertaining an angel. Another phase of her greatness is that number two, she was spiritually discerning and she was sensitive. In 2 Kings 4, 9, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put it in this bed and table, a chair and a lamp for him, and he can stay here whenever he comes to us. Spiritual discernment and spiritual sensitivity will flow out of hospitality. Why? Because when you show hospitality to people, you are inviting in the anointing. You are inviting in the presence of God. You are inviting him to stay, to stay, not just be a weekend resident. The early church practiced hospitality. They were always practicing the presence of God. The apostles did great miracles among them. It always brought an atmosphere of healing, an atmosphere of anointing, an atmosphere of faith. The Hebrew word for, for room here is alea, alea, which contains within it the meaning of room and a staircase or a stairwell. 
And it was added to the second story of every home by which you'd access by a stairway. It was put on an add-on. It had a window overlooking the city streets. It was well furnished and a place for the prophets and the honored guests to rest. How many of you have a master bedroom in your home? How many of you have a master bedroom? Who sleeps in your master bedroom? Do you as parents or do your kids or do your children sleep in your master bedroom? Who sleeps in your master bedroom? You do. You do. The term master bedroom first appeared in the early 20th century to describe a room reserved for the master of the household who almost always was a man. Now, I believe realtors, and if you're a realtor out there, I think they're getting away from this concept of master bedroom, but the, the terminology, the meaning of it, it still sticks. That it is not for your children, not for the kids, not for anyone but the parents, not even meant for the honored guest that come and stay at your house. The Alea, however, is different. Because when this woman asked her husband, why don't we add on a room for this man of God, there was a transfer that was happening because that room that Alea was called the master of the house. That was the name of it. So transference from the master bedroom went to this master of the house room. That's how honored it was. This room was probably much like the room referred to in 2 Samuel 18, the room over the gateway where David went to mourn the death of his son Absalom. Hezaziah was in Alea in his place in Samaria when he fell through the lattice of the window and injured himself in 2 Kings 1. Eglon, king of Moab, was in a room like this in a lair in a summer palace when he was assassinated by Ehud in Judges 3. It was on the roof of the Leah in the palace of Ahaz that the kings of Judah had erected idolatrous worship in 2 Kings 23. So you have in this place of honor, this master of the house, things that can go on that are not so great. You can have some bad stuff even go in this dedicated place. You can have grief, you can have injury, you can have mourning, and you can be idolatry. But such a room that is dedicated to the purposes and the presence of God can become a place of great blessing and great miracles whenever the master of the house is invited to not just be there for a Sunday, but be there to stay. And not just be in case of emergency, break glass kind of God. It was in Alea where Daniel lived and prayed three times daily while facing toward Jerusalem. Even in the place of idolatry where he received these great revelations from God of things to come. The name Alea switched to become the upper room where Jesus said go and tarry right after his ascension. Right after his ascension which turned into the upper room of Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God was poured out on Pentecost. The Alea is where Dorcas, Tabitha, when she died, was placed, and all the widows went around weeping and wailing and showing what great artifacts and, and uh, materials she had made for them. And Peter refreshed her and raised her from the dead, just like Elijah does this little boy. We are never more like Jesus when we make room for others. And we are never more like Jesus when we make room for him in our lives. Great things can happen. Have you made a room for Jesus? Have you prepared an alea so that Jesus can be the master of the house? 
Because when Jesus is the master of the house and you've dedicated and lay it to him, this room becomes a room of blessing. It becomes a place of miracles and it can become a place where dreams are fulfilled because dreams for this woman are going to be restored in her Alea. I don't know if you caught it in 2 Kings, Kings chapter 4 and verse 14. The question is asked, what can be done for her? Elijah asked Gehazi, said, well, she has no son. Her husband is old. And Elijah said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway, in the doorway of the Alea, the doorway where she shows hospitality, where she invites this honored servant to become the master of the house. And when she invites this master of the house now to become in, she gets this promise from God because she's standing in her Alea. About this time next year, Elijah said, you will hold the son in your arms. When you make room in your heart and home for God, there's no telling what miracles he can bring your way. Point number three, her greatness is seen in her contentment. Second Kings 4.11, one day when Elijah came, he went up to his room and lay down there. Said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood there before him. Elijah said to him, tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? Elijah is saying, you know something? We so appreciate this, this room you've added on to us. What would you like? I know the king personally. I have it in with the army, the commander of the army. What would you like? Just name it. What would you do? Huh? Hmm. You know the king, huh? You know the commander of the army, eh? Let's see. What do we want? What do you want? Honey, what did you want? Want some new clothes? Some new shoes? She's not responding. (laughs) She, however, I have a home among my own people. I have family. I have friends. I have all that I need, man of God. You do not need to go see the kingdom, go and see the commander of the army. I don't really need anything. She was content. The apostle Paul said, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. What Paul learned, everybody, was perspective. He basically learned perspective. It's not how much money you have, not the nice house you have, not the nice cool car you have. It has nothing to do with what you have because with, if you're concerned about what you have, you're going to be more concerned about getting more. It's not about what you, what you have or don't have. It's being thankful and content for what you do have. As the scripture said, godliness with contentment is great gain. Back to the Shunammite's response here. She was looking at what she had, and rather than griping about what she didn't have, she was content and said, I am good. Her greatness is seen in her contentment. Watch this now. I'm going to bore down on point number four. Sometimes, however, contentment outwardly can be a, a cover-up or a cover-over of a discontentment inwardly. Let me say that again. Sometimes contentment outwardly can be as a cover-up or a cover-over of a major discontentment inwardly. See, in 2 Kings 4.15, it says, Then Elijah said, Call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About a time next year, Elijah said, You will hold a son in your arms. And when she hears that, you would think, she go, what? You talking to me? Are you talking to me? Me? 
Yeah! <laughs> Honey, come quick! Did you hear what the man of God said? We're going to have a child this time next year. Yahoo! Yes! Let's decorate this room. Let's get it all, get the bassinet in there, turn it everything out. Let's turn the place upside down. Year from now, we're going to have a child. Yes, yes, yes. Is that what she says? Is her response one of joyful celebration at that good news and the very promise of God? Is it? She says, 2 Kings 4, 16. No, my Lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. In every other version I saw, almost every one, it says, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. With the exception of the New Living Translation, which I think is telling, O man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Stop joking with me. It's not funny. It's not funny. Remember, we ascribe greatness to her for her contentment. We describe greatness for her. She said, I'm good. I have need of nothing. Outwardly, she's got everything she needs. She's well to do. Everything is fine. Everything is great. I don't need anything from the king. I don't need anything from the commander. I don't need anything. I'm good. Everything is great. But that's a cover up for something inside that is not great. That is not great. On the inside, we are very complex. On the inside, we are very complicated people. And that's where we live a very secret life, known only to us and God. Don't know and don't care how long you've been married, but there is a secret life we live where we live as bachelors and we live as bachelorettes. We live as bachelors and we live as bachelorettes. And the secret life in the secret place, we live a whole nother life. Only known to God. And in that secret place can be a place of, you know, great peace, great wholeness. But sometimes it's not so much that. It's very gloomy. Proverbs 14.10. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can fully share its joys. In Proverbs 14.13. Laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the grief remains. See, this woman learned how to be content although she had a secret ache of the soul. She's learned how to, you know, put on a happy face. She's learned how to, you know, carry it on. But the fact of the matter is that perhaps inside of her, there is a desire for a son and a son to carry on her name. And as good as all that sounds, it's just not going to happen. Not in her mind. Not in her mind. Because if you were, they, she got offered basically half everything. Whatever you want. I know the king. I know the commander. It's all yours. All yours if you want it. Now nah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need anything. At this time next year, you're going to have a son. No way! No way! Oops. God pointing his finger right on there. And that's why at this great promise of God, you get this response that you do. Oh, man of God, don't deceive me and get my hopes up like that. Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Proverbs 18, 14, it says, The human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear a crushed spirit? You know, in the Old Testament, the word for spirit, when it applies to the Holy Spirit, is the word ruash. And it means wind, it means breath, it means breath of life. But when the spirit is used for the human spirit, the Hebrew word 
describes a person's inside, your emotional energy, your desire for life. And a crushed spirit has a hard time desiring life. A crushed spirit has a hard time of even having a desire for life. Because a crushed spirit, or the word crushed in the Hebrew word is naki, which means beaten, it means broken. That which is pressed to the point of breaking. And when you combine crushed and spirit in the Hebrew, it says a hopeless state, a condition where one is in an utter state of distress and so without hope. And all of this is going on on the inside and can go on on the inside when on the outside you have a healthy body. And that's why King Solomon tells us that a broken body can be stained by a strong spirit, but a crushed spirit cannot be sustained by a healthy body. Remember when Ask what this woman wants. She has, she says, I have a home among my own people. I'm good. But when God wants to bless her, when God wants to give her something that she's probably always wanted, no, my Lord, don't mislead your servant, O man of God. Don't get my hopes up. Don't get my hopes up. And for her to say don't get my hopes up means that at one time her hopes were up. They were up and they came crashing down. Here is where you see the ache revealed. This is where you see God put his pinky finger right on that nerve ending, right on that thing that she really wanted in her life and is coming full bore when God says, about this time next year, it's going to happen. No, don't lie to me. No, no. That's not funny. That's not funny. Stop making jokes. She has learned how to live a life of contentment even when there's a discontentment on the inside, even when there's pain on the inside, even when there's ache on the inside. And she probably went through life with that emptiness, that, that thing inside of her. And we can go through that life. Remember, we can live a bachelor, bachelorette life known only to us and our God. And he sees what's going on there. And she wants a child. She's always wanted a child. Her response just gives it away. What she's always wanted, but she's fighting it. She objects to it. Not going to happen. May I ask you this morning, do you have any hidden aches in your life? Everything could be going just great all around you, and you have your act together, and you have a great job, and you have money, and you're good. Give money to somebody else. We are good. But deep down, in the hidden deep down areas, there are voids, there's hollowness, there's emptiness, there's unhealed, unfulfilled inner recesses of our life that we have chalked up to just be content and to settle in our minds that although we're barren there, we're going to live for God as best that we can like she is. Maya Angelou once said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And sometimes people get tired of that same old story. They're tired of the story. They were meaning to write another story, but this story just keeps getting written over and over, and the pages just stay stuck. And I want to turn the page. I want to start a new story. But this story just bears down inside of me. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. But this Shunem woman demonstrates that one can live a life of contentment, even though there are hidden aches. And only God's spirit and his presence can go in there and bring the healing to those aches of the soul. In Proverbs 12, 18, it says some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Certainly cutting remarks by people, 
I mean, those cutting remarks can go all the way back to when you were a child, back at recess time in grammar school, back to junior high, high school, your marriage, your mom, your dad, your stepdad, your stepmom. Whoever made cutting remarks that left unhealed can change your life and impact the life and the trajectory of your life so you struggle with all kinds of relationships and everything else. If so, we need somebody on the outside to come speak to us in our insides. We can't speak our way out. We can't find our way out. Somebody has to come speak to us from the outside and say, stop feeling guilty. Stop feeling condemned. People whose words are like healing. They are like healing. In Proverbs 15, 4, gentle words are a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. The tree of life is first mentioned in Genesis. It is mentioned in the book of Revelation. In both places, it's a place that's described as located in paradise. Both places, paradise. In both places, the tree of life represents this. And I don't have the words. But it's the absolute fullness of life. The tree of life is a representation of absolute ecstasy, fullness of life. Fullness of life, absolute filling, fullness of life. That's what it is. And Revelation 2.7, Jesus told the church in Ephesus, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from where? The tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Revelation 22.1, the apostle John tells us, then the angels showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the street of the city. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In Genesis, we lost the tree of life when Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. In Genesis 3.22, watch this now. It says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Outside of mankind, you know what we are are doing outside of Jesus. Outside of Jesus. You know what all of mankind has done since. Every one of us is still reaching out to the tree of life to take and partake and to eat. Because anything you say, you do, and you want Outside of Christ, it becomes to you as a tree of life. It becomes to you as a tree of life. Everything you reach for, everything you want to partake of, anything outside of Jesus, outside of God, becomes to you as a tree of life. And when you hold on to that thing that you think is a tree of life, and you partake and you grasp and you eat, it becomes to you as a tree of death. It becomes to you as a tree of death. That's why people go after all these things and there's something inside that God-sized void inside of you. And when you're battling with stuff on the inside, especially a crushed spirit, without God in your life, without Jesus in your life, you are the loneliest person in the world. You live a life of loneliness in that bachelor-bachelorette world without Jesus. And that void, that tree of life that you reach for because it's been lost, that thing can be filled by sex, drugs, rock and roll. It can be, you know, by anything. 
politics, anything at all, anything that you grasp for, anything that's a, as a tree of life to you, you're reaching for. I want to partake. I want to grab. I want to take in. That becomes a tree of life to you. And that becomes a tree of death and even a curse. That is why Jesus was hung on a tree of death. The Bible says anyone who's hung on a tree becomes a curse. Jesus hung on that tree so that he could turn that tree of death into a tree of life so that those who put their faith in him today and receive him into their life will one day partake of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. Amen? Does that make sense, everybody? Does that make sense? You have to let that truth get into your heart so that it can, it can impact your spirit, especially a crushed spirit. Messiah Jesus took on the tree of death so that you can have the tree of life. I have no idea what tree of life this woman was grasping for. I have no idea what she was reaching for to take and eat, dreams, aspirations. I have no idea. But it comes out, doesn't it? It comes out. Perhaps it was the son she's always wanted. Perhaps it was always the son she's always wanted, gave up hope for, said this is not going to happen. Remember, she was hospitable to God's people. She invited in the anointing. She was content with all that she had. She did great things for God. Or she did things great for God. He turns around and does great things for her. In Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. In 2 Kings 4.17, God keeps accurate records, but the woman became pregnant. Next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. One commentator writes, God alone can revive and give life. Such blessings he grants to those who keep his covenant. Number five, his greatness is seen. Number five, and her great faith, which is about to be sorely tested. All faith is going to be tested. You can bank on it. You can count on it. All of our faith is going to be tested. I can bet you a rich Bianchi salary for the next year that your faith is going to be tested. <laughs> Praise God. She has a son. number of years later, he gets sick. He goes out into the field to work with Dad. All of a sudden, she, he's grabbing his head, my head, my head, and dies Probably of sunstroke, heat stroke. So what happens later, she, her faith kicks in because she makes her way to Mount Carmel to try to find Elijah. And who knows if she thought, surely this is not how this is supposed to end. This is supposed to be a promise, right? This is going to be a promise. I can't believe I had a promise. And now I don't have a promise anymore. So I wonder, you know, is this great faith in she goes to Elijah because he's the representation of God because she's in an impossible situation and she needs God and needs God to move. So she heads in the right direction. 2 Corinthians 4.24, she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she sent out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's a Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's all right? Wow, what great faith. What great faith. Great faith. She demonstrate great faith there? Do you think she demonstrate everything's all right? How's her husband doing? How's the child doing? Oh, everything's all right. Everything's great. 
When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God says, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. This is uh, pretty precious here. Don't miss this. You can come into church broken down, beaten down, crushed spirit, staring down the barrel of an impossible situation, having had bad tidings told to you the past week, and come in here and have a parishioner or yours truly say, is everything all right, husband all right, you all right, your son all right, and you say everything is all right, when God knows that everything is not all right. He knows when things are not all right. When Elijah came for the visit, it was a joyous time. When the child of promise, you know, was born, it was a joyous time. And that promise was alive last week. That promise was alive yesterday. That promise was alive and well at breakfast this morning. That promise was alive when he went out to work with dad in the fields that afternoon. But now the promise gets carried back out of the fields by a servant because the promise is dead. In 2 Kings 4.28, look at her response. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And she said, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes. It figures. It figures. I finally receive what I've always wanted. And sure enough, that's the story of my life. What else is new? Gone. Taken away. Should have never had it. I wish I'd never even had a son. Would have been better if I had not had a son than have a son and have him taken away. I told you not to get my hopes up. I told you. You know, one commentator writes, God's restoration of the woman's dead son reminds us that no believer's loss is permanent. Health and loved ones will both be restored when we are raised by the Lord, if not before. It is better to have loved and lost because nothing that God gives us that we truly love can ever be lost. Do you remember what Jesus told a very sad Martha when their brother Lazarus had died? Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I believe the Lord is speaking to people here this morning. And he has made that statement to you because you are staring down the barrel of something that looks very difficult, something impassable, something impossible, something not right, something just not happening. Maybe it's something inside that you've been battling, going on inside a crushed spirit, whatever. And I believe the Lord is telling you to believe. And he's telling you to trust me, to trust me. You need to believe did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And he speaks those words, and Mary and Martha did believe and see the glory of God. This woman did believe and is going to see the glory of God. Is going to see the glory of God. Someone once said, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. The Bible says in verse 27, when she reached the man of God, the mountain she took hold of his feet, that means humility, it means you know, desperation. The woman demonstrates something that God wants to teach us here this morning, that God is trying to bring us to this place where there's an option, where you can reach for his hand and make him your source, and you can reach for his heart and make him your obsession. You can reach for his hand and just make him your source, or reach for his heart and make him your obsession. 
Someone once said that reading the word is like putting our ears over God's heart, but prayer is like God putting his ear over our hearts. When you put your, yourself to praying, God puts his ear over your heart, and he listens. And he's, he's a stethoscope. He listens, and he listens even beyond what's beating in your heart. And when he does, he'll reassure you that you, he is there. There was a little boy out flying a kite one time, and he's out there having a good old time. All of a sudden, the wind kicked up a little bit. A low-level clouds came in. Before you know it, his, his kite was kind of out of sight, and he was standing there holding nothing but string. This man came by, said, what are you doing? said, I'm flying a kite. And a man said, kite? I don't see no kite. How do you know it's up there? So well, I know it's up there. Every now and then I feel a tug of the strings, so I know it's there. You know, when you go through some trials and difficulties sometimes, you're going to think that God is not there. But he'll reassure you that he's there with every now and then a nice warm tug of the heart strings to say, I'm still here. I'm still here. When you make room for Jesus in your heart and life, no matter what you go through, he'll always reassure you that he is still there. Her greatness is seen lastly in her demonstration of point number six, and this is last. What you cannot handle, just hand over. What you can't handle, hand over. Especially what you're holding in your hands might even be dead. Hand it over. I'm almost done, everybody, I promise. 2 Kings 4.29, Elijah said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Watch what happens. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response, so Gehazi went back to meet Elijah and told him, the boy has not awakened. The reason why is because the Lord didn't want him to be healed by that staff, because there was a superstition. Basically, necromancers back in the day would put a staff in the hand of a messenger, a traveler, and said, don't let anyone meet you, greet you, and touch that staff until it gets to the desired place, or else the virtues in it, will dissipate and be gone. What God was doing was blowing away all the superstitious belief that this woman might have had or the Israelites might have had that healing cannot come by person, nor by rod, nor by instrument, but by earnest prayer and faith in the power of Almighty God. 2 Kings 4.32, when Elijah reached the house, there was a boy lying dead on his couch, He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got out in the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hand to hands, and he stretched himself out upon him. The boy's body grew warm, which means God is answering prayer. Some miracles are instantaneous. Some are progressive. They are just progressive. Elijah turned away, walked back and forth in the room, and he got in the bed, stretched himself out upon him one more time. The boy sneezed seven times. The number seven means completeness. It means the work of God. And then the boy opened his eyes, which meant God restored his life. One more scripture, 2 Kings 4.36. Elijah summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. 